9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am at an undisclosed location north of New Jersey, slightly west, east. I don't know where I am, even myself. And joining me for this episode, we have from Miami, Florida, Katie Fang, um, an attorney who has also been a prosecutor and is a regular guest now with us. And all the way on the other side of the country, um, we have Emily Brandwin, who is the host of our show. What's the title of the show, Emily? <laughs> You're going to put me on the spot. Washington for beautiful people. I've been practicing all week for this. Yeah, no, every week I'm going to kid until you get it. And and so Emily is the host of that, which is a great show, which you should listen to. And a little later in the episode, maybe just a few minutes, we will be joined by Ed Luce, our our friend. Um, uh, uh, in fact, I, I, I think he will join in a moment. But let me start. Uh uh, with you, Katie. Uh, in the Hi. past few days, there's been lots of legal news. Uh, and in fact, the president of the United States, even though he spent the weekend at the G20 meeting, um, seemed to be rather distracted. In fact, it, it was kind of weird. He was kind of mo- wandering around there. He didn't really talk to anybody. Then he got on the plane back and he started tweeting out these attacks on Robert Mueller. And then it got even weirder and more Tony Soprano-esque. Um, and Emily, I did notice your tweet to the effect that he was Thank looking you. for, what was, what was it? He was looking to buy land in the, the Pine Barrens? In the, yeah, I said he's, it's not not saying that Trump's a mobster. He's just looking for property in the Pine Barrens. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, uh, yeah, go on. No, I was pleased with myself. Sometimes you make a tweet. I'm like, oh, I was pleased. Good. Well, we're, we're, all, we're all pleased for you, Katie. We're pleased for Emily, right? Mm. Um, so I'm just uh, wondering how I can get on Emily's show. I mean, Washington for beautiful people. No offense, David. I'm like, how do I get on that show? I gotta be. I sounds like I gotta be up in my game to get on that show. <laughs> I, I I think you probably just have to ask her, actually, um, uh, <laughs> or say what a what a perfect choice you were to be the host of Washington for beautiful people, Emily. Oh, my God, Katie, you're so on. When do you want to come on? <laughs> See? See how that works? Um, any, anyway, I thought it was a, a bit strange that the president was getting real mobster there, and he was kind of going, well, you know, uh, Michael Cohn should really get the book thrown at him because he went after me, but uh, Roger Stone said he wouldn't go after me, and that's he's got a lot of guts. But that looked to me a little bit like witness tampering. But I'm not a lawyer. You are. Is it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually honored that I get to join the leagues of people like George Conway, 
who we know is Kellyanne Conway's husband, um, and somebody like Neil Cattell. So, so yes, we collectively think, not think, but, you know, we, we suspect that there's some witness tampering going on in violation of a couple of federal statutes. Um, if you look at these tweets that are going out, I mean, we, it's, it's pretty obvious. Donald Trump is the president of the United States, and for him to be making a huge line of demarcation by stating, if you are somebody like Roger Stone, who has the, quote, guts to stand up to Robert Mueller, then if you're Michael Cohen and you are a cooperating witness, then you are a horrible person and you should get the book thrown at you. It's a pretty clear message that you're sending. And you're sending the obvious kind of principled concept, which is, you know, snitches get stitches, right? So he's saying that somebody like Michael Cohen should be launched in terms of sentencing and exposure because he's decided to do what? Tell the truth. I mean, his tweets have been off the rocker today. Um, he mentions, uh, he mentions in one of his tweets, uh, there's, and he puts in, in capital letters as if it's somebody's name that, uh, that there's a guy named Scott Free, which we all know is not really a guy, right? But Donald Trump's like, oh, Wait. you know, he gets an order reduced deal, right? I went to the Scott Free Bar Mitzvah when I was younger, and he was amazing. He was a lovely guy. Yeah. I'm sure he was, yeah. right? We all did the, he did the, you did the tie dance at Scott Free's Bar Mitzvah. So, yeah, so Donald Absolutely. Trump is talking about himself in the third person. He's talking about how Michael Cohen and the wife and the father-in-law who get off Scott Free. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous, but all kidding aside, this is inappropriate and illegal conduct coming from the president of the United States. You cannot influence, intimidate, or try to affect the outcome of a witness by sitting there and basically dangling the concept that the guy's going to get a pardon. Let's be, let's be totally blunt. Roger Stone has been preening all weekend on all of the morning shows and everything he's been doing, all his appearances, he's been trying to get a pardon from Donald Trump. And I think that that is a highly possible um, outcome for Roger Stone, but it is exceptionally inappropriate for Donald Trump to be tweeting out that there's a distinction with a difference between the conduct of somebody like Michael Cohen, who, by the way, David, um, I'm not saying is any huge American patriot. Let's be blunt. I'm not saying that. But the fact that Michael Cohen has seen the light and decides that he wants to cooperate is completely within his purview. He can do that if he wants, and it's completely legal. And we take everything he says with a grain of salt, but he can completely cooperate with the Mueller investigation and the New York State Attorney General investigation and the New York State taxation investigation and whatever investigation he to cooperate with. He can completely do that. And that doesn't make it illegal. It makes it wonderful. And it gives a lot of evidence to Robert Mueller and other federal prosecutors. So Katie, I was wondering, is there any way to get Stone in New York or somewhere locally or regionally so that he couldn't get out of a pardon that Trump couldn't save his ass? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, listen, so what does he have possible exposure for right now? Perjury, right? False testimony to Congress. Um, and then frankly, you know, the underlying no crime, which no crime of collusion, but some type of conspiracy. I don't know. You know, that's a really great question. I'd really have to see if there's an applicable state statute that would get them outside of the presidential pardon umbrella. Um, because it would really suck if there wasn't, right? I mean, Paul Manafort yeah. has pled everything, so he's got oh. his own exposure. But, yeah, definitely somebody like Roger Stone. I'm sh but listen, right? I'm sure somebody could find something. <laughs> I'm sure somebody I, could find well, something I was wondering, somewhere. like, would, would Mueller 
hypothetically, and this is like me with fingers crossed making like a birthday cake wish, could he work with, you know, New York or DC and say, look, we don't want to get him under some kind of federal statute. We want to get him, you know, under New York or under DC. So that way he doesn't, you know, he can't get out. Would, is that something that's under the purview that Mueller can do? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the concept of cooperation between offices, I'm sure that he could work with another office, but I don't think there would be any harm as long as there's not some type of wrinkle from a double jeopardy standpoint. I don't know if you guys remember this, but earlier in the year, Schneiderman, before he um, bowed out, was working on trying to get the state of New York to change an existing law in terms of whether it was double jeopardy to prosecute somebody for a state offense if they were pardoned um, on, a, on a federal level um, because it was kind of a wrinkle that existed. And so uh, assuming arguendo that there's no preclusion on the elements of the, of the crime, then Mueller could still bring a federal action and so could the state prosecuting agent um, agency, whichever one it ended up being, they could also bring, you know, a state offense as well, but it would just making sure that there's one that's a colorable, actionable kind of offense that you could bring against Roger Stone for his conduct. I'm sure there could be something. Uh, Maybe there's some type of uh, wire-ish kind of stuff. Well, presumably that would be amazing. Also, presumably there's also other cases. For example, in the case of Manafort, there are, just as there are federal tax violations, there are state tax violations. And so there are there, there there presumably are array of issues that might might be slightly different, but but on the state level, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you know, as, and and that would afford the opportunity for a state prosecutor to be able to go after Paul Manafort, despite a pardon which may occur by Donald Trump, but. You know, I'm thinking for somebody like Roger Stone, considering what the allegations are against him, if you kind of step outside of the lying to Congress concept, um, then maybe there could be some type of wire fraud or some type of thing that happened vis-a-vis any conspiracy with Russia. But normally that's within federal kind of um, crimes. And so I think it would take some, some modicum of creativity, but I think you could probably find something that that Roger Stone's conduct falls within. Um, but yeah, it would be great to be able to find something that would exempt Roger Stone from being able to claim that he has the presidential pardon. Um, you know, another of the things that the president was uh, tweeting about this morning, uh, Emily, was his successes in negotiating with the Chinese, where he averted a trade war that he actually started. Um, and <laughs> his desire to you no, know, was I, I thought it was kind of masterful um, because essentially he 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 declared victory in a negotiation with himself, um, but then he said that he'd like to go ahead with the Chinese and the Russians and get rid of the insane seven hundred and sixteen billion dollars we're spending. And I thought about that a second, and of course the thing that cost seven hundred and sixteen billion dollars was the defense budget he's been arguing for. And so I've started to come to the conclusion that that Trump has been driven so insane. I mean, that Trump has Trump derangement syndrome. He's been driven so insane by Mueller that he's gone inside a bubble and and is just sitting essentially on Twitter talking to himself. But you're well, a trained psychologist, right? Absolutely. That's one of my many hats. 
You can call me Dr. Emily. But I mean, I always know he's gone really crazy when he starts talking about himself in the third person. Then I'm like, oh, okay, we're in like cat, a tweet storm five. And I'm like, oh, he's gotten really crazy. Uh, yeah, I know. I think it's a genius move to like, to declare victory over himself. I'm going to start using that whenever I have a fight with my husband. I'll just start a fight and then end the fight and just say, I have victory. It's brilliant and crazy. Take a page out of some of your J-date experiences that you mentioned on a prior podcast. <laughs> I think we should start a dating site where the first thing you do is break up with the person. Oh, that would be amazing. You, you know, you avoid all the pain later. <laughs> It's, well, it's just a, it's just, it's, it's just a thought. Let me go back to another legal thing. I'm just sort of recapping some of the things that have been in the news over the weekend as people sort of pick up over this, uh, or over the past couple of days. And Katie, there was one story that again was legal in nature that's pretty close to home for you, um, and that is the story that appeared in the Miami Herald about how the current Secretary of Labor cut a sweet deal for a guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who was accused of sex trafficking, uh, often with underage uh, uh, girls, um, by something like 60 or 70 um, uh, women, um, and somehow managed to get the sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals. And there is some suspicion that one of the reasons this was the case is that among the people that Jeffrey Epstein has been linked to in his um, uh, sort of history of, of, of sex games and worse, is the president of the United States and in the interest of fairness. Another one is the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton, and in the interest of going after your profession. Another one is Alan Dershowitz. Um, uh -huh. And, and you, there, there you are in Miami um, where a lot of this is happening. I was wondering what your take was on that. So the Jeffrey Epstein horror story has been around for years for those of us that are in South Florida. It is, you know, for me, and I was speaking with, and my hat off to her, Julie Brown from the Miami Herald. I spoke to her yesterday. She and I are at the studio together at the same time for some shows. And I spoke to her and I said, look, um, this Epstein thing, it's been around for a long time. Never thought there'd be an angle that hasn't been explored until now. So we all knew down here that Alex Acosta was the United States attorney for the Southern District <coughs> of Florida when this Epstein sweetheart deal came to fruition. But the stuff that really stunned me and really upset me, especially as a former prosecutor from about ha more than half of my career, is that when it came to the time of sentencing, the victims were never notified that it was occurring. And so it happened and they were completely in the dark about it. And the fact that he, as an Epstein, got, I mean, I think David calling it a sweetheart deal is the understatement of the century. He got basically a non-prosecution for the most serious offenses and got to do his um, house arrest um, or on work release. So he basically got to be sentenced to, quote, house prison or house jail, but then was given and afforded the special opportunity to leave on a daily basis for hours on end to go to a cushy office that had been set up a few blocks away from his home to be able to not be in house the entire time. And the real tragedy that happened here is, and David, you were right to note, the connection to Donald Trump is inescapable, as well as to former President Bill Clinton. But 
sex trafficking, human trafficking is not a political issue. It's not a party issue. It's a horrible crime that has gone, you know, kind of swept under the rug and really kind of ignored. And a lot of these victims have been marginalized. And, and the really sad consequence of what happened with Jeffrey Epstein is that the longtime story and the tale of money buying your freedom, absolutely accurate for somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, if not money and power and connections. But these victims were marginalized and they were victimized time and time again, victimized by Jeffrey Epstein, victimized by the state system, the federal judicial system, and the people, the prosecutors who were supposed to be their voices and they were supposed to fight for them, rolled over and played dead and did nothing for them. It's an epidemic. It really is. I'm sorry. I just, I, it, to me, it's so disgusting, but it's such an epidemic of what we're going through. And it's such a reflection. We are going through me too. We're going through all this, but yet this goes on time and time again. And it shows women who are victims of this kind of hideous abuse that you, all you need is some dollars in your pocket. You need to know a couple of bigwigs. And not only will well, the perpetrator get all free, but you're not even going to give an opportunity to make an impact statement to say how this affected you. That to me is, is so egregious and so disgusting and heinous. And yeah. Sorry. Well, let me, let me yeah, uh, open the conversation a little further here. Um, Ed Luce, are you with us now? I am indeed. Sorry, just taking rather a long time to unmute my mute button. Uh, well, yeah, don't, don't, I mean, it sort of diminishes the value of your presence if you're muted. Um, you, you've been listening to, you've been listening to some of this conversation. We started out with a discussion about uh, Trump essentially using the, the internet to either witness tamper or obstruct justice, um, essentially to act like, you know, Tony Soprano without the introspection or the light touch. Um, uh, in, in, in terms of managing his, you know, the Mueller case. Uh, and then we, we moved on also to this, this case that involves the current Secretary of Labor, uh, but also involves Trump and some, 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 some other political types, um, uh, essentially, you know, taking advantage of, of the system uh, to do serial heinous acts. And I'm thinking, you know, in France, they're literally burning down Paris right now um, over some, you know, reasonably serious economic issues. But the American people aren't doing anything. I mean, the president of the United States is abusing the system of justice six ways to Sunday. And, and why are we so placid? Well, it's all relative. Look, I, I, I'm... Uh, I'm just to, to wear my British hat for a second, um, uh, aware that there is no such thing as a Mueller inquiry taking place in Britain right now, and there should be. Um, foreign money was almost certainly used um, by a pal of Nigel Farage and therefore um, a pal of the sort of Bannon crowd over here um, to fund the EU.leave campaign. All kinds of um, laws were broken, all kinds of criminal um, activity um, is, is almost certainly um, correctly alleged to have taken place around the 2016 referendum. And there is no strong public appetite to set up the equivalent of, of a ring-fenced inquiry such as the one Mueller is, um, is still investigating. So, it, you know, it depends... <clears throat> 
the premise of your question depends on where you're sitting. Um, there is um, a lack of outrage. There is a numbing. There is a degrading of what's um, acceptable. Uh, there is a normalization. Um, and that's, you know, and Trump is definitely worse than Tony Soprano. He actually, you know, he worked at his marriage um, and, he, and he saw a therapist. Yeah, he actually, you know, tried to get some therapy. Um, uh, so, you know, I haven't yet given up hope um, uh, on on the American system working. Um, I think that we are probably we probably have good grounds to say, oh, well, look, you know, if the Republicans haven't been shocked, you know, into changing yet. And Jeff Flake, you know, is all promise and never a delivery that it's going to be no different when Mueller completes um, uh, his investigations and issues the sort of strongest indictments at the end of it. But I don't know. I don't know whether we can yet be that pessimistic um, uh, with with full confidence. There's something about the sort of final delivery of the full report and the Michael Cohen, um, the Michael Cohen details about the uh, um, the Moscow Tower that that were released in the Southern District last week. You know, uh, you know, give me some sense of perhaps false hope that there could be a pretty strong conclusion to the Mueller inquiry. Let me, let me go to you, Emily, and then I, I want to come back to Katie with a question that follows up on what Ed said. Um, but Emily, you know, I was in New York the uh, night before last walking through Little Italy, and there was a, a restaurant down there um, that, uh, that had a, a, essentially a shrine to Tony Soprano in the window. Oh. Uh, lot, lots of pictures of James Gandolfini, the whole Soprano oh. family. Um, and, Are you and, trying to and make was, me cry? I love this. It, yes. No, no, it's it's here. You can come in. It's and it's like oh God, the, it's the restaurant. It's one down from Umberto's Clam House, which was a um, a famous mob hangout. And um, and 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 I looked into you know the picture of 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 James Gandolfini, and I thought that at least there's there's some soul there. There's some sensitivity. Uh, and I just want to give you an opportunity to give us a couple of other reasons why you'd rather have Tony Soprano as president than than Donald Trump. Tony loved his kids. Truly. But he loved them. I don't think Trump loves his kids. I think they're useful for him. Would you all agree? Tony, yeah. Tony also liked the ducks, right? He loved he loved the ducks. He had a soft spot. I think also on an aside, I always want to go as Adriana for Halloween. That was always my Soprano's dream that I never realized. Um, but I, you know, I think Tony also had a loyalty to people. I don't think Trump's loyal to anybody but himself. There's nobody he's loyal to. Tony had a code of ethics of some sort. I mean, it was a totally fucked code of ethics, but it was a code of ethics nonetheless. I don't think Trump has that. I actually don't even think Trump could spell ethics. So that's neither here nor there. But I would I take a, I take seven Tony Sopranos over one Trump. Can I add something here, uh, which is that he enjoyed a good glass of wine and, oh, he did. Uh, and Trump didn't, doesn't. Oh, now this is interesting, Ed, because, you know, a lot of people sort of said, well, at, at least Trump isn't a drinker. Um, but you're actually saying that's a defect. I think there's a great and storied history from many parts of the world 
about uh, the, um, uh, the the philosophical benefits of red wine um, and the reflective qualities of it. And I think, you know, Trump being Trump would probably have three bottles of, of vodka um, if he were a drinker. Uh, and of course, that would make him worse. Um, but uh, the ability to enjoy the finer things in life is something I have not noticed in any aspect of Trump's personal taste. Well, you know, another thing that Tony Soprano had going for him is every morning, what did he do? He walked down he to the, the end the of newspaper. the driveway. He got his newspaper. And he got the newspaper. Indeed. He could read. And <laughs> he could... <laughs> He started the day reading the news instead of watching Fox News, and uh, it, I don't. I don't know, Katie. Do you have anything to add before I get more serious about this? I just, I, you know, I just. I'm like, I'm in this. I, first of all, I'm entranced with what's been said because it just put me in this alternate dimension of. Could you imagine Trump's tweets if he was drinking? I mean, would, would they become more lucid? Absolutely. I mean, would they actually it make sense? I mean, or, or would it be like tripping? Like, it's like you wouldn't even need substance, you know, assistance in any way because you could just read them and just be like on this whole other plane of reality. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. His, his tweets alone already kind of can either inspire vitriol, but maybe his tweets, if he was shit face would just be, you know, amazing. I don't know. I just, I was just thinking about that. Sorry, guys. I just went off. I drifted off thinking about those things. What if he could spell if he was drunk? That's all I keep thinking. I'm like, I wonder if that would improve his spelling. It would be amazing. I think he'd tell the truth in, in vino veritas. Wow. Okay. Ah. That's right. Uh, And now you've explained by reverse logic why he doesn't drink. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's that's a plausible theory. Someone needs to get him drunk Great immediately. Potion. Right, yeah. he, he doesn't drink because he might tell the truth, and then where would we? Then then where would we be? Um, okay, so Katie, just picking this story up where we go because we only have about fifteen minutes left here. That, that, I get the impression in the past few days that this whole Mueller thing is picking up steam. You know, we have. Oh yeah. We have Manafort. First of all, we have the president giving his answers. Then we have them going after Manafort for breaking the terms of his deal. Then we have Cohn coming in and making this new plea deal and revealing, among other things, A, that the Trumps had been had dealings in Moscow for much longer than we thought, and B, um, uh, that uh, the Trump himself is individual number one, that he's kind of in the middle of this investigation. And they go to some length for for Cohen to reveal that he's actually been clearing all this with Trump or cleared it all throughout this. Um, And we have um, Papadopoulos being sentenced. We have Mike Flynn getting sentenced this week. We have, uh, or a sentencing statement being made this week. We have a sentencing statement being made on Cohen this week. We may have new charges following up on the Manafort thing this week. Where are, is, am I wrong or is this snowball snowballing? Yeah, so the one of the deep state podcasts I did with you, David, before – um, and and I believe it was with Rosa, we talked about whether or not this was a, you know, 
train that was picking up steam and, and really starting to barrel along. And I was a true believer in believing that that's exactly what you were going to see happen. I do think there is some credit to be given to the lull vis-a-vis the midterm elections, that there was a respect afforded to the process, which we didn't see clearly two years ago, about not trying to affect the outcome of of an election. And that's the reason why we didn't hear neither Hyde nor Hare from Mueller about what was going on. I think that in a, and I want to give Mueller credit for this, that he lulled people into a sense of complacency. If it was Trump, Trump family members or Trump surrogates, somebody as dumb as Paul Manafort, who thought he could outsmart Mueller, his team, and the feds, you know, people like that thought, oh, let's lead them down the primrose path to their, to their demise. And I think that's exactly what's been happening. I think it is no coincidence that the Michael Cohen plea that just came into existence last week was a shock and a surprise to Donald Trump's team. That is exactly how it was supposed to play out. It was after the submission of written answers by Donald Trump. And I think that for those that thought that the Mueller investigation was circling the drain on collusion, and I want this to be clear, everybody thought that there was going to be an imminent conclusion on the collusion issue, and I'm telling you right now, the Michael Cohen plea, his plea agreement, the information, his sentencing memorandum, all emphasize the fact that there were distinct connections between Russia, Russian government officials, during before, during, and after the presidential campaign for Donald Trump. It is no coincidence that this is all coming to light now. This investigation will not conclude um, in the calendar year of 2018. There's more indictments to come, and I think it's crucial that we see what happens to Paul Manafort, because I do think that, you know, that will send a resounding message loud and clear in terms of how Robert Mueller deals with bullshit flip defendants like Paul Manafort. And I think that that will be something that will start to scare a lot of people. And I, and I mean, real people, guys, I don't mean Jerome Corsi style caca, like he did today, where he's trying to accuse Robert Mueller of treason. I don't mean that ridiculousness that he filed today. I mean, I'm talking people who think they have real significant exposure and then really Roger Stone can take it and pack his shit and move away. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Roger Stone claims he will not ever budge in terms of he will never be forced to bear false witness, as he likes to say against Donald Trump. But I don't care what Roger Stone thinks with the bravada. A lot of people have tried that, including somebody like Michael Cohen, who said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump. And we know how that turned out, right? So I think that this is a train that is being full bore, full steam ahead, and a lot of people are going to be carnage along the way, and rightfully so, because they will have violated the laws of the state of the United States of America. Do you think his kids are going to get get dragged into this? Do you think you'll see like Don Jr. getting getting hauled away? Because that's my that's one of my secret, not so secret dreams that we see all the Trump kids like frog marched across the White House, House lawn, taken away. Yeah, I think of, of all the children um, who are definitely liabilities to him, Donald Trump Jr. will be the first to go. His 2016 like Trump Tower meeting involvement, Donald Trump Jr. will be the first to go. Uh, so, don't so, toy so with Ed, me. Ed, Ed, yeah. So, Ed, um, as we look out over the next couple of months, and we also have a new Congress starting in the midst of this, and, 
And I don't know if you had the chance, but a couple of days ago, I did a one-on-one here on Deep State with Eric Swalwell, and he was talking about what the Congress was going to do, the new Democratic Congress. And one of the things he specifically said was that they were going to go after things that they didn't think Mueller was going after. So, for example, um, uh, money laundering. They, they felt there was evidence of money laundering. They would p- cooperate with Mueller in a way that Nunez did, wouldn't. And so there were a whole bunch of places where they think perhaps perjury took place. They're going to pass that all on to Mueller. Um, uh, uh, they're going to look at his business dealings uh, in certain ways that Mueller, that is outside the ambit of what Mueller is doing. And so Katie makes the case that Mueller is going to pick up steam and it's going to go on for a bit. Clearly, the Congress is going to pick up steam. And we've got the president walking around Buenos Aires like a zombie. He he is clearly so obsessed with this, preoccupied. I mean, he literally is wandering across the stage saying, somebody get me out of here, you know, which is probably what he says to himself 24 hours a day. And I'm just, you know, how does the U.S. government function while it's it's functioning, doing all these things it should be doing? Well, I mean, it hasn't really been been functioning. Um, so, you know, it'll just get more dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, Trump's clearly, clearly worried. He's clearly um, at a, a different level of worry um, and than, he, uh, than he has been. And, and that's saying something. Um, I think, you know, if there is a... The, 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 Pelosi's not weakened, um, but she's not as strong as she might have been, say, coming in as speaker in uh, early 2007. And I think one of the consequences of that is that committee heads are going to have quite a lot of autonomy to pursue Trump investigations, subpoenas and the like, and, and public hearings um, in a way that, you know, if she had full control um, and uh, 100% iron discipline, she might not politically think wise to do. And so some of the things will be, uh, as you mentioned, work that uh, Mueller hasn't been directly um, looking at. Um, and some will be um, things he undoubtedly does have um, access to, such as Trump's tax records. Uh, I think one very interesting uh, sort of potential dynamic in the coming couple of months is, you know, the battle over whether the Treasury is going to release them um, to Congress, uh, to the Ways and Means Committee, um, which is Richie Neal. And Richie Neal has very much got um, Trump in his sights. Um, and whether that then goes to the Supreme Court. And if so, you know, what the likes of Brett Kavanaugh vote. Um, uh, so, you know, I've no doubt that it will get more dysfunctional. But the question is, at some point, how much more dysfunctional can you get? You know, he's he's got... Um, He's been through the C team of lawyers. Um, I think he's pretty much through the D team. Um, I don't. I don't think he has, you know, professional legal advice. And even if he did, he wouldn't listen to it. So, we're going to see the wheels coming off, um, potentially quite rapidly. So, but before I get back to Emily, Katie, Ed brings up a good point about the C team and the D team, and the president's tweets today. How can you possibly represent a man? who every time he picks up his cell phone is committing a new federal crime. He can't effectively. And I think what you do is you, you CYA the best that you can. I mean, if he was my client, I would be papering the crap out of that relationship, attorney client wise saying, I advise you to do X and you've done Y, but you know, it, it, 
there, there are a couple of lawyers that are kind of flying below the radar and behind the scenes that are advising him right now. There's a husband and a wife team from down here in Florida that is on his defense team. But, you know, it's a revolving door of attorneys, and so there's no consistency there. And frankly, what's more terrifying about the lack of consistency is the lack of institutional knowledge. You don't have anyone who was there from ground zero up. And that's terrifying when you have somebody who is as just all over the place as someone like Donald Trump. Now, you couple that with the fact that Don McGahn spent hours with Robert Mueller as well. And if you are current counsel for Donald Trump, you just put your head down and you just kind of, you know, put your shoulder against the wind and you try to do the best that you can do. But remember, every attorney still has a code of professional responsibility. We have ethics codes that, that govern the way that we are as an attorney. You can't suborn perjury. Um, we can't do things like that. And so you have to be really careful about um, a client like Donald Trump. And, and truth be told, you'd probably spend more time protecting yourself and making sure you had no exposure as a lawyer, either ethically or legally in terms of violating a law, then you would be worrying about what happens to him. Um, you know, one way that this story can be written, Emily, is the state of California versus Donald Trump. You have Nancy oh Pelosi, you have um, Adam Schiff, you have Ted Lieu, you have Eric Swalwell, you have Kamala Harris. You <laughs> At the forefront of all of these initiatives against Trump, is the state of California. And I was just wondering like, if you would speak up. It's like the League of Superheroes. When you name them, I literally see like them all sitting together at a big meeting and plotting to save our country. I know it's once again, California is going to save the day. But literally, those are the voices that will, I'm convinced, will actually save, will save us. Because they're the ones making the most noise, getting out in front and and doing the work that needs to be done and speaking truth to power over and over and over again. Um, yeah, well, exa ex exactly. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting though, Ed, because it does seem like there's a, there's, you know, it's almost like one America is prosecuting the, the you know, the, the other America. The, the, I mean, the divisions here go beyond Trump. And, um, you know, I was looking at a story over the weekend that was talking about the victories the Republicans had scored in the gubernatorial races, uh, and they actually did pretty well. And, and they were talking about the ruralization of the Republican Party. And, and I noticed in Trump's tweets today, somebody had pointed, put that in front of him, because he was like, well, you know, this big breakthrough I've had with China, which we've discussed earlier, was complete bullshit, um, uh, is really good for farmers. And, you know, I love farmers and farmers are everything. And I wonder if, you know, he thinks there's enough of them to somehow forestall the, the you know, this, uh, this uh, steamroller of justice. Well, I think what he thinks um, is, uh, and he, you can tell this from what he's been saying about um, Jay Powell and the Fed, that he's not one little bit happy with his appointment of Jay Powell. He thinks probably quite correctly that we're going to get um, a pronounced economic slowdown. We're already getting a global downturn. 
Um, the um, Fed interest rate cycle is on a tightening curve. Uh, that's going to continue at one speed or another, even if, um, and perhaps especially if Trump continues to try and intimidate Powell to keep the punch bowl there. Um, there, there are all kinds of sort of global slowdown warnings um, in general, and American ones in particular, um, in terms of the um, evaporation of the stimulus effect from the tax tax cut, which is pretty much going to have gone by early next year, by the next quarter. Um, in terms of heavy consumer indebtedness, uh, you know, the, 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 the middle class have not really actually enjoyed this recovery. And like recovery, recoveries don't die of old age, something sort of kills them. But uh, the, um, the middle class have never actually enjoyed it. Um, so the next two years are not going to be like the last um, two. And Trump's not going to have a boast to make about um, manufacturing jobs being restored. Quite the opposite. He's trying to sort of explain away why they continue to evaporate, most recently with the General Motors closures. Uh, and, you know, there were 15,000 of those, but times that by six if you want to look at all the suppliers who supply these GM factories. So he's not going to be basing his re-election effort on um, economics. He's going to be doubling down on the culture stuff and on the race stuff and on the anti-immigrant stuff. And he's going to, he's going to go for broke in terms of the nastiness. And so we should prepare ourselves for that. Um, I hope very much that that will result in his comprehensive repudiation of the ballot box in 2020. But, um, you know, we can't bet on that. Um, it's going to get much darker before it gets light. Yeah, I think that's true. And unfortunately, that's where we have to end this particular podcast. I hope everybody joins in in future podcasts. We're going to keep talking about this, obviously. Uh, and we've got a lot more different avenues by which to discuss these things. Because in addition to Deep State Radio, which you've got on Tuesdays and Thursdays, unless you're a member, in which case you get them immediately on Mondays. Uh, you've also got now Emily's podcast, um, uh, Washington for Beautiful People, right? That's what we call it, Emily? That's Correct. what we call it today, yes. Yeah, Correct. Washington for Beautiful People. And we've got our new podcast, which are one-on-ones with leading national security people, National Security Magazine. Um, uh, last week, we did a great conversation with Wendy Sherman. This week, we've got a great conversation coming up with uh, Jake Sullivan, who's a former Deputy National Security Advisor and uh, was the top uh, uh, advisor to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, and uh, we continue to have a variety of other um, specials as we go through the week uh, and as events uh, warrant. So uh, please, you know, listen to all of them, uh, join us, become a member. And you know, if you become a member now before Christmas, you get the most amazing thing. I have to tell you, go to the website, take a look at it. We have uh, somebody, somebody in the deep state has created Ministry of Snark Christmas tree ornaments or um, Emily, as you or I might call them, Hanukkah bush ornaments um, oh, yes. or um, Kwanzaa shrub ornaments. But they're, you know, these are limited edition collector's items uh, uh, from direct from Ministry of Snark um, and I, I, you know, I strongly urge you to go there and uh, sign up. Now's the time. Do it and, you know, give the gift 
of uh, the deep state to your family members for the holidays. In any event, that helps us do what we're doing here and try to expand our coverage um, and uh, helps keep the smallest media company in the world going. Uh, uh, the other thing, of course, that does is the participation of terrific guests on the episodes. Uh, and for that, I want to thank Katie Fang, and I want to thank Ed Luce, and I want to thank Emily Brandwin. And uh, please join us again for the next episode of Deep State Radio, because they'll all be back with us. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.